Good Sunday morning, everyone. My name is Sarah Thurs, and I would like to extend some extra credit points to all of you who braved the bitter cold to be with us in person here today. Like teachers, put those gold stars at the top of your homework when you go above and beyond. I've brought golden snowflakes for you all. So if you would like to come find me after the service, I thought we could wear them as our badge of honor for braving the cold. A little something extra, a little sparkle to brighten your day. And to those of you watching at home on our church YouTube channel from the comfort of your cozy homes who didn't come, like Jeff Probst says in Survivor to the challengers who do not complete the reward challenge, I got nothing for you. <laughs> but you know who does is our very own Reverend Brian Mason. He has a service that's going to be wonderful, whether you're joining us online or here in person. And um, I just want to say that um, if you're like me and you read in the church newsletter that he titled today's sermon, Trapped, and you thought it was going to be about the latest Liam Neeson movie, spoiler alert, it is not. It is uh, going to be about uh, the pressure that we sometimes put on ourselves to stick with things that we should maybe let go of, but we feel trapped to continue doing. And I think you'll enjoy that. One of the things I love about this church, speaking of trapped, is that none of us feels trapped to come here. Look how many of you showed up in the bitter cold to come be together in this beautiful sacred space where we gather together and welcome everyone with no exceptions, just as they are, who come together in their search for truth and for meaning and connection. So thank you, thank you for coming. And if you're a visitor here today who braved the cold, I especially thank you for coming. Please know after the service I'm here to give you a tour or share a cup of coffee in our atrium, tell you more about our church. Whatever makes you feel comfortable, I promise we will do it with zero traps. I would also like to uh, read some announcements they've given me. And if you're a visitor, please know you're welcome to come to these as well. We'd love to have you join us. The first of which is we're going to have a community potluck lunch on Sunday, February 4th at 11.30 a.m., so directly after the service. Please join us for a delicious meal and the opportunity to forge new friendships that make our church community so special. Whether you arrive with a dish to share or just an open heart, we welcome all at this inclusive gathering. Thank you to Carolyn Powers and Laura Searing, Jerry Phelan, for hosting that potluck that will occur two Sundays from today. Secondly, volunteers are needed to assist with the Red Cross Blood Drive on Monday, February 12th. That'll be hosted here at our church. For more information on the shifts that are available and to volunteer, please see the most recent circuit writer. You can visit us on social media or email admin at uuwasa.org to help volunteer. Third, would you like to host our second Friday Nighters event? We're looking for hosts on February 9th and beyond. What is Second Friday Nighters, you may ask? Uh, it's an event where we get together as, um, sometimes it's at a private home where it's adults only, other times it's in the atrium and it's intergenerational to gather together outside of church. If you'd like to host, please email admin at uuwasa.org or again, call the church office. Uh, we also have uh, our uh, community focus collection today on the third weekend of each month. Our Sunday collection is given to a pre-selected ministry partner organization or cause that puts our values into practice. And today's donations will be going to Catholic Charities Day Center and we will hear from Elizabeth Robinson. So with that, I ask that we all come together and extend peace and toasty warm wishes to one another in the pews. friends, let us focus our hearts and minds as you join me in reading today's chalice lighting. The words are in your order of service. Even when our hearts are broken by our own failure or the failure of others, cutting into our lives, even when we have done all we can and life is still broken, there is a universal love that has never broken faith with us and never will. Please rise as able for our opening song, number 38 in the gray hymnal, Morning Has Broken. <laughs> <laughs> 
This morning I'd like to share with you a story called Stuck. It's written and illustrated by Oliver Jeffers and published by Philomel or Books, excuse me. It all began when Floyd's kite became stuck in a tree. He tried pulling and swinging, but it wouldn't come unstuck. The trouble really began when he threw his favorite shoe to knock the kite loose. And that got stuck too. So he threw up his other shoe to knock down his favorite one. And unbelievably, that one got stuck as well. In order to knock down his other shoe, Floyd fetched Mitch. Cats get stuck in trees all the time, but this was getting to be ridiculous. Floyd fetched a ladder. He was going to sort this out once and for all, and up he threw it. I'm sure you can all guess what happened. The ladder was borrowed from a neighbor and would definitely need to be put back before anyone noticed. And in order to do so, Floyd flung a bucket of paint at it. And wouldn't you know it, the bucket of paint got stuck. And then Floyd tried a duck to knock down the bucket of paint, a chair to knock down the duck, his friend's bicycle to knock down the chair, the kitchen sink to knock down his friend's bicycle, Floyd's front door to knock down the kitchen sink, the family car to knock down their front door, the milkman to knock down the family's cat, an orangutan to knock down the milkman who surely had somewhere to be, a small boat to knock down the orangutan, a big boat to knock down the small boat, a rhinoceros to knock down the big boat, a long-distance truck, we might call it a semi, to knock down the rhinoceros, the house across the street to knock down the long-distance truck, a lighthouse to knock down the house no longer across the street, and a curious whale in the wrong place at the wrong time to knock down the lighthouse. And they all got stuck. The fire engine was passing and heard all the commotion. The firemen stopped to see if they could help at all. And up they went. First the engine, followed by the firemen, one by one. And there they stayed, stuck between the orangutan and one of the boats. Firemen would definitely be noticed missing, and Floyd knew he'd be in big trouble. Then he had an idea. He went to find a saw. He lined it up as best he could and hurled it up the tree. And that was it. Pop, 
There was no more room left in the tree, and the kite came unstuck. Floyd was delighted. He had forgotten all about his kite and put it to use immediately, enjoying the rest of his day very much. That night, Floyd fell asleep exhausted, though before he did, he could have sworn there was something he was forgetting. Hang on, lads, I've got a great idea. And that was our story for today. This morning, our preschoolers through sixth graders are invited to join us downstairs for our children's chapel, and youth are invited to stay in worship with their families. And whether you're heading down to RE or staying in the sanctuary, I invite everyone to bless everyone with our children's song. The words are printed in your order of worship. I'd like to invite everyone into a time of prayer and reflection. You can start by uncrossing your feet if they're crossed and placing them flat on the ground. If you're comfortable closing your eyes, now's a good time to close them. We'll start with an awareness of our body, focusing our attention on the top of our heads. Slowly move your attention downwards into your jaw. Any tension there, let it out. Now downwards, your neck, and focusing on your shoulders. Take a full breath up and into your back and shoulders, and slow out. And now move your attention to your stomach. Take a full breath and push your stomach out. And exhale. Source of grace and light. We've been filled with the gift of life with every breath and every heartbeat. We give thanks for the life in our veins, for the work of the cells, for the energy that pulses from atom to atom, for the power that keeps planets and stars moving along their courses. We give thanks for the ancient stories that tell us of love, for the women and men of every time and place who fish for the meaning of your call in the deep ocean of living. And we give thanks for the great source of all life, who through generations turned everyday people, people like us, into prophets and sages, disciples who tell the good news. In the silent depth of our hearts and in the joyful sounding of our words, we each give thanks for breathing in and breathing out. Now let us call to mind all the joys and sorrows in our lives and let us meditate on them in silence together now. Amen. 
Please stay seated for prayer hymn number 159, This Is My Land. My name is Elizabeth Robinson, and I am representing the Community Focus Committee. Uh, so I work at the Neighbors Place, and we are housed in the same building as Catholic Charities and uh, Good Shepherd Shelter. We work closely with uh, the shelter and now the Day Center, uh, which did just open this past week. Um, and it was a, a great time for them to open given the temperatures outside. There's been a great need to have a warm space for people to be and uh, to limit travel um, and ex cold exposure. So I have a story of something that happened this week just to illustrate the importance of a warm space, a safe space for people to be during the day. Uh, we had a, an officer drop off a refugee who had been evicted from their home. This refugee barely spoke English. <clears throat> they didn't understand what was happening. They had brought none of their belongings with them. They were dropped off at the Community Partners Campus. Fortunately, the day center was open at that time, so we had a space because the, none of our agencies otherwise within that building are set up to receive a person in that situation. We don't have dedicated staff 
to serve them. Um, so having the day center, we had a space for them to go, to sit down, to be offered snacks and water and, and, and to know that they have a respite for a period of time until we determine next steps. Uh, we were able to get in touch with ECDC and New Beginnings to find somebody who had an established relationship with this individual to ensure that you know, we could find a way to better communicate with them, to find a course of action to get them into a, a stable position. Um, and that's just, that's one example. Uh, and I think with the day center, they're not operating alone. Um, they are re relying on a community of support and we are so fortunate to be in a community that works together so well. Um, I know that they are looking to build their programming. They're just getting on their feet. They want to work with different programs within the community. They are looking for volunteers. If you have a skill set that might benefit people who are in the day center, whether it's supporting their well-being, maybe it's a meditation, some, uh, it could be a, a skill that might support them in financial stability. Uh, they really are looking to the community to help build that programming and um, I know their support will be greatly appreciated. They could not be here today because their services are open um, to, uh, to receive people and bring them in from the cold. So thank you. This morning's reading is a poem entitled Bluebird by Charles Bukowski. And the poet writes, There's a bluebird in my heart that wants to get out, but I'm too tough for him. I say, stay in there. I'm not going to let anybody see you. There's a bluebird in my heart that wants to get out, but I pour whiskey on him and inhale cigarette smoke, and the escorts and the bartenders and the grocery clerks never know that he's in there. 
There's a bluebird in my heart that wants to get out, but I'm too tough for him. I say, stay down. Do you want to mess me up? You want to screw up the works? You want to blow my book sales in Europe? There's a bluebird in my heart that wants to get out, but I'm too clever. I only let him out at night when sometime everybody's asleep. I say, I know you're there, so don't be sad. Then I put him back, but he's singing a little in there. I haven't quite let him die. And when we sleep together like that, with our secret pact, and it's nice enough to make a man weep, but I don't weep, do you? There it ends our reading. I'm sure most of you have heard of the singer-songwriter Randy Newman. He's made music for like 60 years. He's won Academy Awards, he's won Emmys, he's won Grammys. He's scored dozens and dozens of soundtracks for movies, movies like Ragtime, Awakening, Marriage Story. But he's probably best known for his song for the original Toy Story movie. You know it, and if you don't know it, you're about to know it for the rest of your day. You've got a friend in me, right? You know that song. 
So one of my favorite Randy Newman songs comes from a lesser known album called Little Criminals that he recorded in 1977. Maybe it was a good year for you, I wasn't alive. So the song that I'm thinking of on there is entitled Baltimore. Now I've been told that Baltimoreans don't like this song very much. They're sort of offended by it, but I don't care. I think it's great, it's a wonderful song. It's about how difficult life can be. In it, he sings these wonderful words. Looking everywhere, ain't nowhere to run to. Man, it's hard just to live. Man, it's hard just to live. Just to live. It conveys a feeling many of us have or have had, the feeling of being trapped. Now, there are all kinds of things that make us feel trapped. Perhaps some of you feel trapped financially. You frequently check the banking app on your phone to see how you'll pay the electric bill before it's turned off. Now, maybe some of you don't worry about your paycheck week to week, but maybe you're about to retire, or you just recently retired, and that fixed income you're drawing hardly makes ends meet. Or maybe your doctor has told you that you can't do a favorite activity anymore. Or maybe your kid's extracurricular activities cut into your spending money. I'm going to close my eyes because I don't want anybody to think I'm looking at them with this next statement I'm about to say. Maybe you feel trapped by your relationship because you have had the same conversation with someone 85,000 times and they haven't changed. Maybe you're trapped in a bad dynamic, a job or you're trapped geographically in a place that has been too cold to go outside for two weeks. Some of us are trapped by past traumas or bad habits. Maybe you just wanna stop sleeping with the TV on. Maybe you're like someone I know, maybe this is a little autobiographical, who has patterns from your childhood. Like, do any of you still feel bad whenever you buy new clothes? Because when you were a kid, you lived in a household with adult A, who you had to hide purchases from every time you came inside the house. So like every time you came home from JCPenney or Walmart with new clothes, one of your siblings would have to create a diversion so that your sisters could run inside and hide everything in the closet so adult A wouldn't find out that adult B had just bought you a new coat and shoes. Well, whatever it is, we all know what it's like to feel trapped. Even geniuses feel trapped. In fact, in fact, the person Oxford University calls the most distinguished man of letters in all of English felt trapped. We know this because Samuel Johnson kept a meticulous diary about it. Now, for those of you who don't know, Johnson was this 18th century poet he was also a playwright and a critic and an editor. Get this, by the time he was three years old, he could recite full passages from the Book of Common Prayer. By seven years old, he was fluent in Latin. By 16 years old, he was translating ancient poetry. And as an adult, he compiled the most influential dictionary in the history of the English language. If you can believe this, his ideas went on to shape a language that is now spoken by two billion people across 88 countries and territories. And his thinking, the way that he thought, influenced the American Constitution and also the US legal system. He's kind of smart, a little bit. But Johnson's genius did not stop him from being just like everybody else. He was a slave to his impulses. Here you go. In 1738, at 29 years old, Johnson wrote this in his diary, quote, O oh Lord, enable me to redeem the time which I have spent in sloth, end quote. 19 years later, at age 48, you flip back, you open up his diary, quote again, O oh mighty God, enable me to shake off sloth, and redeem the time misspent in idleness and sin by diligent application of the days yet remaining, end quote. 
Fast forward in his diary, seven years later at 55, he says, I am still a slob. Two months later, 55.2, he writes, please let me rise from all this sloth. Fast forward again, 1775, he's now 67 years old. At 38 years after he wrote his first journal entry about being trapped, he wrote, and I'm quoting, when I look back upon resolution of improvement and amendments which have year after year been made and broken, why do I yet try and resolve again? End quote. So Johnson felt something we've all felt guilt for not doing enough. But more than that, Johnson also felt guilt for not being able to do enough to change the things we know we need to change. If you felt this, and maybe you haven't, and good for you if you haven't, but if you felt this, you are also in the company of Olivia Rodrigo. I say her name knowing that some of you will roll your eyes after all, she's just a 20-year-old pop star. 20 isn't exactly the age of wisdom. How many of you made good choices at age 20? Don't raise your hands. We know none of you did. But Olivia is wise beyond her 20 years. On her latest album, which you should all listen to without the kids in the room, it's entitled Guts. She sings about something many of us know, how there have been behaviors or people in our lives that we should stop, but we can't. Or the opposite, things we should start, but we don't. Oddly enough, if you survey our culture close enough, you will see that people act like they are not victims of their own desires. Like they're just a change away from living their best life. Have you seen a little bit of this somewhere? Just download an Instagram account and you will see this in every post. So the assumption has a lot of good advice that you can buy from newsstands. And usually the advice goes one of two ways. The first bit of advice is what I refer to as the law. And what does the law say? Follow these rules. Get more fiber in your diet exercise, buckle down and read this book. The other advice about feeling trapped is what I call the faith. The faith to trust in somebody or something more than you trust yourself, to yield any claim to full power so that, somewhat counterintuitively, you end up making room to move a little more freely. If ever you've been to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, what I just did is I fused steps one and steps two into one. You see? Now, religions, both conservative and progressive, they love the law. We love to tell people what to do. And both like the law for the same reason that our culture does. Anthony Lane, who writes in The New Yorker, we discussed this article in New Yorker Noon Swoon, what he said is that people love to say you can run your life like a CEO who calls all the shots because why? Because it sells. That's why. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm sure some people feel empowered by this idea. Some people need to be told you have the agency to make changes, that you can sort of tighten your bootstraps and do things. But there's a limit, right? You can't control everything. For starters, does that level of agency really exist if you think about it? A few questions to get you to start thinking about this. If you're the CEO and your life is the business, then does the business have to file for bankruptcy if your kid gets sick and you can no longer live vicariously through all their little accomplishments? Are marriages really just the merger of two businesses run by two agreeable CEOs? What happens if you're diagnosed with depression? Now, these are all really big questions, so I also have a very realistic one that maybe you're familiar with. What happens when you just decide to eat the entire bucket of KFC while watching The Golden Bachelor? It happens. So Heather Haverleski, she writes a popular advice column that I love called Ask Polly. 
She says, our obsession with control is the root of much of our suffering. Here's Haverleski, I'm gonna quote her, two very short paragraphs. So many of the letters I get that people send me to my advice column are about control. We apply the full force of our brains to the things we can't control until we're obsessed. Mapping out ways to bend each relationship or life circumstance or friend or relative into a shape that might bring us satisfaction and peace. But this fixation on control is a big part of what makes most of us actually unhappy because we can't control our careers. We can't control our friends. We can't control our spouses. We can't control our kids. We will never have enough money. We will always be short of feeling beautiful. We will never be loved enough. We will never be successful and joyful. Our need for control is a dirty lens through which the whole world ends up looking misshapen and dissatisfying." End quote. Now I'm gonna translate that into some real world tangible examples because this isn't a new idea. The first one comes from the year 1984 from a masterpiece that some of you have seen called Footloose. Have you all ever seen Footloose? It is a true masterpiece starring Kevin Bacon in which he plays chicken while driving a tractor. It's worth it just to watch that scene. The point of this is you tell a man that dancing will ruin his life to find out what? Big shock, trying to get him from dancing leads him to self-destruct. I have another example. Hiding painful emotions leads the girl in the movie Inside Out to think the only solution to her painful emotions is what? To run away. I have another example for you heady intellectual types from Dostoevsky from his book Crime and Punishment. I got a C in Russian literature, so I think this is what was happening. But the main character in there Raskolnikov, he finds out that when we think of ourselves as CEOs, and by that meaning pure intellect or pure appetite, what ends up happening is we lose sight of what makes us essentially human. And for Dostoevsky, the thing that makes us essentially human is our conflicted will and our need for spiritual correctives. Get that? Telling someone they're wrong, even if they're wrong, seldom inspires change. There are a few teachers in this room right now. I'm assuming all of you were good teachers. So this is a rhetorical question. How many students at Wausau's schools are inspired when the teacher just says, you're wrong? The answer is zero, objectively zero. From what I've seen, one of the best things you can do for a young person is what? To tell them, you're not alone. The same thing you struggle with is something I once struggled with as well. Can I show you a better way? Now from an early age, I don't know about you, but I was told that I needed to be unique and I needed to be special. And this isn't terrible advice, but it's also not not terrible advice. It only goes so far because the price we pay for telling people that they need to be special and unique, that they need to be the CEO of their life, comes at the expense of all those ways in which we are the same. Thankfully, many of us find out at some point that some of the ideas we have about ourselves and about the world aren't actually in tune with reality. Right? We discover this. But it's no fault of anyone that we discover this because a lot of the stories we tell about humankind have mountains in them. And I don't have a problem with mountains, metaphorically or real. And there, it's not like there aren't mountains in life that we summit. It's just that a lot of life, by most people's accounts, looks like a series of little deaths and resurrections. There are mountains, but there are a few but there are a lot of little deaths and hopefully a lot of resurrections. Dying to the idea that I can't fix myself, that I can't control my wife or my kid or my congregants or how America is going to vote in November. 
dying to the idea that we can't entirely create ourselves anew, that we don't live without limitations. On this topic, the Buddhist nun Pema Chodron, she says that when most of us face this reality, we do almost anything to get away from it. Here's a quote from her. Most of us, she says, want to avoid emotions that make us feel vulnerable. But rather than run away, run away, Chodron says we should try and see what makes us vulnerable as something like a road sign that points the way to freedom and acceptance. Now, I struggle with Chodron's advice. I've encountered this advice in a lot of places. I see it every morning, almost every morning, in my devotions. I just recently read the story of Jonah. And what is Jonah told? He says, God says to Jonah, Jonah, try not to be selfish. I want you to go serve other people. And what does Jonah do? He runs from this advice straight into the mouth of a giant fish. Thankfully, thankfully, in October last year, the New York Times ran a story that proves Chodron and Jonah right. And I'm going to tell you that story really quickly, and then we'll have coffee. So it's about the Minnesota Board of Pardons. Anybody read this article about the Minnesota Board of Pardons? You're going to cry. It consists of the state's governor, the attorney general, and the chief justice of the Supreme Court. So here's what happens just across the way. So twice a year, this board meets, and they hear lots of accounts, but every person gets 10 minutes. 10 minutes that people convicted of crimes pour out their hearts, and they ask for forgiveness. They ask to be pardoned for the sins of their past. Now, aside from a couple of journalists and a few guests in a room, the only thing in these boardrooms is the board, the person pleading their case, a digital clock counting down the time, and tissue boxes all the way around the room that almost everybody reaches for as they listen to convicted criminals tell stories of death and resurrection. And so Minnesota's governor is this gentleman by the name of Tim Walls. And he said the first time he started thinking about pardoning came years and years ago when his wife, who's a prison education advocate, she brought her husband along to a concert the musician Joan Osborne was giving for free at a prison in the state. He said he was at this concert and he was moved to tears when he heard the entire prison and all the attendees, but especially the incarcerated crowd, join in singing Osborne's anthem, for those of you who grew up in my era, One of Us, in which she sings those famous lines, what if God was one of us, just a slob like one of us. And so in this piece, what it does is it focuses on a man by the name of Jim Lohr, who was convicted in 2005 for making and selling methamphetamine. Now, his crimes not only disgraced his family, it absolutely bankrupted them. He ruined his life, and he ruined his family's life as well. But when Lore got out of prison, what he did is he worked hard, and he got sober, and he got started working as a drug counselor. But every day, every day of his life, he lives with the collateral damage, and so do all of his loved ones. But with the help of his family and his church, he started to seek a hearing with the Board of Pardons. And so in tears, just before he goes in to address this board, Lore is overheard asking, do I have to carry this burden for the rest of my life? I just want to be forgiven, he says. I just want to be forgiven. A pardon, he told the journalist, would help him and his fiance finally get better housing. It would allow him to start volunteering at school activities so he could spend more time with his children and with his soon-to-be new wife's children. It would also give hope to his struggling clients that we can change our outcomes and eventually remove the label of felon. But the thing is about formal forgiveness in the state of Minnesota is that it only comes one way. It comes through the pardon board. 
And so when Lore walked through the door to plead forgiveness, what you have to bear in mind is that his life was in someone else's hands. He gave it over. He was trapped. But as counterintuitive as it sounds, that's exactly where the good news came from. And so what did he do? He stood before the board and he admitted something that was as true for him as it was true for everyone in that room and in this room as well. I can't control everything and I need help. But it's in that space of vulnerability that freedom rushed in. And so Lore walked out of that meeting a pardoned man, free to be the dad he dreamed of, the spouse he dreamed of, the friend and mentor he was called to be. Now to me, what this story highlights is how letting go of control opens up the door to change. How doing that gives us road signs that point us in the direction we need to go. And here's my last point. In theory, in theory, the church is the place where that same decision is handed down week after week. Pardons and second chances. We might walk through the doors of this church and we may feel bankrupt. Our CEO may need to be fired. But when you walk through the doors of this sanctuary, all labels are removed. Amen. Let us rise and sing our closing hymn, number six, Just As Long As I Have Breath. If you'll receive the blessing, I invite you to reach out, take the hand of someone nearby. If you're here alone, reach out with your heart. May the truth that sets us free and the hope that never dies and the love that casts out fear lead us forward together until the day spring breaks and all shadows flee away. Please have a seat. See you in a moment.